Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Welcome to our Think Humanities podcast. Our guest today is making his second visit to the podcast. Willie Edward Taylor Carver Jr. has been named the 2022 Kentucky Teacher of the Year. And when he was on the podcast, he told an incredible story of growing up in Appalachia, an educational journey that took him to France. Uh, He was a fluent speaker of French and a teacher of French. Uh, He had a teaching stint in the northeast part of the United States, but decided to return to Kentucky, and he did, and he spent 10 years as a teacher in the Montgomery County, Kentucky school system. His enthusiasm for being in the classroom, uh, the work he did with students, uh, came to life when he talked about his passion for teaching. But something else was going on with Willie. And that part of his story is now in verse and published by the University Press of Kentucky titled Gay Poems for Red States. Willie, welcome back to the microphone. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be back a second time, and it's so great to be in person. Um, Last time we were uh, on opposite sides of the computer screen, so getting to see your face is great. Um, Well, it's uh, it's such a pleasure to have you uh, with us, and I'll just make an early announcement that uh, uh, Willie will be with us at the Kentucky Book Festival. Uh, We're going to start promoting and talking about that uh, here in the early part of uh, spring and and summer. Uh, Please, everyone, mark uh, October 21st and uh, put that on your calendars. Uh, that week is our Kentucky Book Festival, and, and Willie will be there. And if you don't get to see him or meet him before then or buy his book, um, uh, please come out and see him at that time. Willie, uh, you, uh, up to, to this book of, of poems, I, I, I thought you had put together an incredible life as a... Um, as a gay man from Appalachia, um, as a, a one who found um, your place uh, in in school and education, I was so impressed with your background and uh, reading about you, and then talking with you on the podcast. Uh, you were, it seemed like to me, I, I thought you were going to be there forever and ever, uh, but that didn't work out. So, but just tell tell our folks, remind them of of your growing up in Eastern Kentucky and, um, and, and going to school and, 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 and how you became the person you were uh, a few years ago. Sure, thank you. Um, one, I thought I was gonna be there forever too. Uh, I, I got to where I was because of the teachers I had. That, that is the short answer. Um, so many memories, I, I could talk for hours about the kind things that my teachers did. Um, there was the academic aspect of it for sure. I think I have probably, I think I have one of the best educations in America in Floyd County schools in Kentucky. Um, but then there was just the emotional side of that, the human side of that. Um, teachers who gave me shoes, um, when I didn't have them and who knew how to do that. Uh, my fourth grade teacher, Miss Dameron, um, literally brought this pair of shoes to me and said, 
I bought these for my son, but he scuffed them and I can't take them back and they're the wrong size. Maybe you know someone. And I'm standing there with your shoes falling apart. I did know someone, but she knew how to do it. Um, but they were always supportive. Uh, my teachers, I, I had the privilege of knowing that there was somebody who cared and was taking care of me um, in, in an aspect of my life that might have been a little outside of what my family was comfortable with or just had had experience with. Um, if you wouldn't mind also, tell that story about you and your brother. And uh, I think I remember it uh, accurately without going back and listening to our our first conversation about when I think it was your your grandmother maybe or your mother who took you to school and one of you stayed and one of you didn't. Keep talking. I'm trying to remember. Is that the story stated. where you went into the school and your your brother was so intimidated by? Oh, um, so this was not even that long ago. It actually has a really good ending now that you that hadn't happened yet. My uh, my nephew. Um, my mom took him to school, uh, so at this point he, he would have been a freshman. Um, he and his his first cousin, but they're both raised in the same household. Yeah. Um, so she took them to school, and they wouldn't even get out of the car. They said, well, this is too fancy, Mamma. So she, because Floyd County has this brand-new state-of-the-art school, so she drove them to get new clothes. They dress. They go back to the school um, for orientation night. She gets out of the car, walks in, and turns, and they're gone. Like, they literally took to the hills um, because they didn't feel adequate enough as because human beings. Because of the stigma that mm-hmm. they, they had grown up with. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you there were lots of teachers trying their best to erase that stigma, uh, but it takes a lot to undo the, the sort of damage that's done to Appalachian kids. Um, luckily, one of them ended up going to the David School, which is a really nice uh, independent private school um, that's totally, I don't even know who pays uh, to keep it open, but it's free for the students who are there. And another went to Betsy Lane, um, which is a smaller high school in Kentucky. Um, so they're, they're both luckily in high school and doing well. But um, you know, that, that is where I came from, where school seemed above uh, where we were. And I think my teachers intentionally lifted others and lowered themselves uh, so that we could feel even as much as possible. Um, and they're, they, they're the reason I went to college. They actually cornered me in high school. <laughs> I, was, I was working at McDonald's, um, had every plan on managing there someday. Hadn't even occurred to me to go to college. And McDonald's is great uh, if that's if that's your choice, right? But I think for me it was well, this is what's going to happen because I don't really have choices. Uh, but yeah, um, I was called to the office, thought I was in trouble. Went to the teachers' lounge um, and was like, why am I going to the teachers' lounge? It was all of my teachers, and we had just gotten back the ASVAB scores, I think, and they were like, do you know what your score is? Do you know what this means? And I didn't know what any of it meant. Um, but they were like, you should go to college. You should at least try. And they inspired me so much from that one meeting. I didn't miss a day of school um, the next two years of high school. I had straight A's the next two years of high school. Despite that, I still didn't have a 3.0 when I graduated <laughs> because I was not doing well those first couple of years. But that's the power of people who work with young people and why it's so important that they're not just able to teach what they do, but that they want to do it and that they want to help young people. Were you at that time uh, struggling with your uh, sexuality, with your gender, with your identity uh, as a as a young kid? Uh, when did that happen to you? 
I probably the funny thing is um, the the world around me painted gay people um, in such ugly terms that it didn't occur to me that I could be that even when I knew that I liked boys. Um, I think I had my first crush in first grade, so I was well aware of that. I was also well aware of the fact that I was a sissy, um, and. The sissy, the part of me that worried about being a sissy was usually worried that other people, somehow I was harming them, that I was making their lives worse. Um, but the part about liking boys, it didn't even occur to me until maybe fourth grade. Um, I think I've, that was when it started to occur to me, okay, I actually don't like girls at all romantically, and I would only ever imagine myself holding hands with a boy or whatever you're imagining in fourth grade. Um, so by high school for sure. Um, and it's, it's hard to explain how, how deeply buried that is and how you can simultaneously be aware of something and not know it at all. Um, so I certainly hadn't spoken the words out loud to anyone or myself, but I certainly knew. Um, was that any different in Appalachia than it is in urban Louisville or Lexington or Washington, D.C. or New York or Montana or anywhere? Um, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, were you struggling there in, in rural Appalachia just like a kid in inner city Lexington might? I think there there's some similarities. Um, I, and when we look at what's happening in Kentucky right now with Senate Bill 150, for example, um, the similarity is the taboo, that somehow you're such a monster that you can't talk about these things. And so when we when we talk about teachers being supportive, what we really just mean is teachers making it clear, if you talk about these things, you won't be shut down, or these are not bad things to talk about um, who you like or not. Um, so in that way, I think pretty much across the United States, especially in that time period, um, I was struggling in similar ways. I think what probably compounded it was the particular brands of religion um, that are more popular in Appalachia, where everything is, it's emotional, and it's about this connection with God. Um, so that feels like a really big emotional part of your life. Um, and then to have people constantly tell you, well, you're not a part of this. Uh, you know, who you are is, is suspect, and God doesn't really like who you are. And when you know that you can't sort of pull that queer aspect of yourself away from who you are, that there is no you without it, um, I definitely questioned whether, I don't know, whether I had a place in the universe at all. Like, it's sort of weird to think I'm a 15-year-old kid, and I've already decided, like, my existence is hostile to the purpose of the universe. Um, everything that exists is in opposition to me. I shouldn't be here, but here I am. Um, how do I reconcile that? Were you bullied? I am lucky um, in that for me, I think I'm outspoken and I'm large. <laughs> so I, I was even in high school able to speak out even though I never said that I was gay, I was able to speak out about human rights um, in pretty loud ways. And um, that even that for the time were strange. Uh, I don't think you saw many uh, people speaking out about, I don't know, um, racial equality or uh, LGBTQ rights. But at times I would even talk about LGBTQ rights. Um, so no one particularly um, outside of family. Mm -hmm. Inside of my family, for sure. But uh, in school, I was fairly well-liked. I also had a brother who would beat people up, so I think that helped. <laughs> <laughs> it's always uh, good to have that brother. It's always good to have that or brother. Sister, uh, or sister, handy. Oh, my sister definitely beat some people up. Uh, so <laughs> I, I was actually lucky, and I, 
I'm at a point in my life now where I think even my teaching experience ties into this thought that I thought if I'm well liked, if I'm sort of a, a model minority, um, then maybe I can change things. And I think what I realized is no one whose impulse is to take from you is ever going to really give to you. And if you think that humbling yourself or being perfect is going to change things, you are definitely wrong. Um, so in some ways, even me being a successful teacher was a continuation of me being a successful high school student. And I really thought I'm going to change things, but I did not. Let's go back uh, just a, a few years. You, you, um, you got to college. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about college on because... That's when I looked at your, uh, when we were doing the first podcast and looked at your, uh, your, your resume, if you will, uh, your accomplishments, uh, your, your stint in Europe, um, which I think is a great story, uh, your time in Vermont. Talk a little bit about that part of your history. Sure. Um, college was great uh, because I think all college students sort of are willing to push boundaries in some way. Um, and Moorhead State is a great school. I had wonderful professors, and those professors created space for those conversations. I never once had a professor come up and say, Willie, you should be gay, you know, but um, they would say the word gay in class. And so I realized this is, a, this is a place where these conversations can happen. This is a space where that existence can be, and I hadn't had that before. And so being given that freedom for the first time in my life, it was just obvious this is where I'm going to go. Um, I had wonderful professors. Uh, one of my names comes from her, Taylor. Um, and she was my French professor, actually, uh, Dr. Karen Taylor. She actually insisted that I go to these conferences with her all the time. So we, we would go to Atlanta or go to Cincinnati and she would always have me stay and meet her colleagues. And once I was like, okay, why do you insist that I meet people? Like, it's fine, but I always feel awkward. Like I have nothing to bring to the the table when you're uh, making me meet people. And she said, I'm wanting you to meet adult gay men because I want you to see that you can live. Um, And she wanted me to to have something I could cast a future onto. Um, That's how thoughtful she was. Uh, And and it worked. Mm -hmm. Um, I was able to sort of envision what a future might be. So, um yeah, Morehead was was that. It was it was expanding what I might be. Um, and I still hadn't shed everything, right? I still had this idea that I had to be sort of a model everything. I think also there was a lot of, I had a lot of guilt um, because I felt like I was, I was getting these opportunities that people like my mother never had uh, to get to go to school. And so that sort of fueled me to think I have to be perfect in these situations. If I don't make an A in every class, then I'm wasting this opportunity. Um, sort of like I had the weight of my ancestors um, behind me. Like if I don't do, sorry, if I don't do this, um, then I've failed them. So um, I definitely worked as hard as I possibly could um, throughout college. Um, and then that led itself to grad school and France and all of these wonderful and cool um, opportunities um, to expand what Appalachia was, um, to to think about myself in terms of sort of global uh, thoughts. Did you ever think you would come back to Appalachia? We um, talked a little bit about that on the first podcast because you were you were teaching in Vermont for a while. Mm-hmm. That's about as far away as you can get. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, I not, the the funny thing is I hadn't yet. Um, told this story my first year of teaching at Montgomery County High School um, 
I school hadn't even started yet. Uh, and an administrator pulled me into an office and said, so I just need to understand you are openly gay. And I said, yes. Um, and that administrator said, just so you understand, you will be crucified here. No one will protect you, including me. And so I had to go into the closet. At that time, teachers had to have all of their administrators sign off for them to get a teaching license. So I was like, if everyone here doesn't sign this document uh, for KTIP, I won't have a license. And that's my key out of here. Um, so I made the, my mind up. I would move to the safest place for gay people I could think of. And my husband and I were like, Vermont is it. We had already been married there. So school was out. And the next day we were on our way to Vermont. And I don't mean to say anything ill of Vermonters or New Englanders or anyone else in America, but I missed Appalachia because I don't think I've ever lived anywhere where people are this smart. Um, Appalachians are witty. They can keep up with conversations. It's fun to talk to people. And most of the places I've ever lived, I have to talk slower. And I kind of have to dumb <laughs> down what I'm saying. Um, and I'm, sh- you know, I, I do not mean to paint Appalachians in such a happy light. But I think we're just more creative with language. Uh, Robert Guy says, when it's all you can afford, uh, then you use language well. Something along those lines. And I think he's right. So. Yeah. I would, I don't know, I would just be talking and people would stop me and say, well, I think you're using some Southern expression. What does that mean? And I'm like, no, I'm just using metaphor. I'm, I'm using an idiom or I'm using yeah. metaphor. I'm speaking creatively. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I needed to speak much more directly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I missed Appalachia primarily for that reason. Uh-huh. Um, but I, it, there, it's a complicated place, but I miss the humility too. Um, I, I think it's a lovely part of our culture. It's also a broken part of our culture because it prevents us sometimes from moving forward, right? Mm-hmm. Because if, if you don't want to say that someone's wrong, then even if they're being racist or homophobic, you might just be quiet. Uh, so sometimes that humility hurts us. But on a day-to-day level, it's nice for people um, to treat you with as much dignity as possible in that moment. Mm-hmm. So um, you were in Vermont, uh, mm-hmm. decided to come back to yeah. Montgomery County, and that's where you spent your 10 years and were richly rewarded with the mm-hmm. um, designation of Teacher of the Year. And, yeah. And I know you were so proud of that. And mm-hmm. um, I'm sure you're, you're, is your mother still living? Yeah. And, and, and she she must have been over the top with, with that designation. Oh, she absolutely was. My, my, most of my, my immediate family has been absolutely so supportive and uh, excited for me uh, when yeah. all this happened. Yeah. Um, I, I literally laughed when I got nominated because it seemed like how, how? Because the nominations are not district-based. Um, I don't think at Montgomery County I would have been teacher of the hallway, <laughs> teacher of the year, uh, because I, in order to do the things that actually won me teacher of the year, I had to push back a lot um, because there was this sort of instinct there um, to, to silence LGBTQ kids. Or um, So what were some of those things that you did do? So we had an LGBTQ student group with 40 students. Um, those 40 students... They completely led everything, uh, and that, that was sort of that's how I always see myself as a teacher. Like, what what is what is your interest, and how can I support it, and tell you that it's going to work? Because mm-hmm. I think that's that's the real work with with young people. It's to tell them that whatever dream they have is worth having. Um, and so, whether we're talking about sitting in French class and making up projects or bigger things, that that was sort of what I would do. So. They were interested in um, LGBTQ history because the school didn't teach it. 
So they created a history unit, and these students literally showed up after school and taught themselves because no one else would do it. Um, and then they reached out to a historian, Eric Marcus. Uh, he, I think that's his name. Um, one of the, he's the biggest name in LGBTQ oral histories. Um, and they invited him to come to Montgomery County. And he said yes. Uh, so wow. They, they raised money for um, victims of uh, natural disasters. They, they created a survey to sort of measure the climate at school. We created um, dual credit opportunities in French, I think the first in, that in, in the entire eastern part of the state. Um, my students competed in the state French fairs. It was always fun. It shouldn't be, but I, I would sort of, you know, I'm bringing public school kids from Eastern Kentucky in this like conglomerate school in the middle of the county. And we're off, you know, with second year students in French class competing against private school students from Jefferson County who've been in French for six years. And my students won first place, you know. Um, and it's, it's not that one student is inherently better than another student. It's um, when you take someone who hasn't had the chance to hope. And if you can really crystallize in them this idea that they can do it, it's new to them and it's exciting. Um, and you can inspire in magical ways. Um, I was able, we, we recreated curriculum. We had the highest writing scores because um, I also offered dual credit English um, of anyone on campus or off campus uh, at Forehead uh, State. But it was always because I've really, I know the feeling of being in a room and having the adult in front of you not think you're going to do something special. Mm. And so I think what what I brought to the table, ironically, wasn't really what was happening. It was not what was special. What was special is what they were all doing. Because anything I could point to was my students' work. All I did was sincerely believed that the work that they did was going to be special. Mm -hmm. um, that's what teachers need to do. But in the back of your mind, mm -hmm. you knew... You had to leave. You knew oh, yeah. that things were were building up against uh, you, and and that uh, uh, which which uh, uh, ultimately led to uh, this uh, publication of gay poems mm -hmm. for, for red states and and the work that you've done in here. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about that process. Um, so, yeah, even the first example of no one will protect you. Sort of that that set the tone for what school was going to be. And I'm not dumb. I'm a gay teacher in the South, so I knew there were issues. And um, the, we had administrators change over the years, but the most recent incarnation uh, is particularly hostile uh, to LGBTQ um, people. And so I found myself constantly in trouble, <laughs> to, to say it bluntly, over silly things that were elevated to this position um, as if I was some sort of monster, I guess. One was a Dolly Parton quote. Um, we had just finished a unit on morality. Uh, we read all kinds of great thinkers. We read Nietzsche. We read um, a few nuns whose names are escaping me. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, the quiz at the end, uh, all they, they, they had a quote, and they had to decide, uh, was this Dolly Parton or... Mm -hmm. uh, one of the people we read in class. And so in order to answer it, they really had to understand the purpose of the reading. And they got to learn that Dolly Parton was super smart because sometimes it's hard to distinguish Iris Murdoch and Dolly Parton. <laughs> anyway, one of Dolly Parton's quotes was, it was a good thing I was born a woman or else I'd have been a drag queen. Um, it was the last quote on the quiz, obviously not Nietzsche. 
Uh, when I tell you I had to meet with administrators five separate times over this, um, they would drag me into these meetings and frown at me and say, like, you know, what is your agenda? Why would you? And I was like, these are seniors in high school. They know drag queens exist. There's nothing inappropriate about the existence of a human. Um, I mean, that's a light example. That's you know. They didn't want the term uh, drag queen. They banned that quiz from a college class. Um, I, being offered to high school seniors, but literally because of the word drag queen. Um, my students created a, uh, they were worried. A lot of students had tried to commit suicide. Um, their classmates were concerned that they felt that the school was hostile um, and that some of the teachers uh, specifically uh, were hostile. So they created a school climate survey. Uh, they were so professional about this. These kids met with researchers at UK to learn how to do this survey appropriately. They met with the Kentucky Student Voice Team, and they gave a presentation to the English department about why we needed this survey. And they moved everyone. The entire department said, yes, we will share your survey. So they shared it as an option on their classroom website. So no one was mandated to do it. They weren't even giving time to do it. They just had it there And if you would like to fill out the survey. They straight up banned this survey um, in an embarrassing announcement. That's how they communicated it. It was announced over the intercommon school that any teacher who was giving the gay survey should immediately uh, take it down. And I explained to the administrators, it's illegal to do this because this is a limited open forum and we've got plenty of Supreme Court cases that have shown that if a limited forum exists, you have to give everyone access to it. Um, but they were not listening and so they they you know shut these kids down when they're trying to do work. These are kids who are just trying to have some data that they can show the board because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to justify why we needed some anti-bullying classes and why we needed to talk about things. Do you think um, that action is being done uh, more by administrations alone, or is it uh, parent-driven, or is it a combination of, um, or is it is it politically driven um, and forced upon e either one? Uh, and and what are we to expect to happen in the future? I think it it is a weird convergence of all three of those things. So, because I think. Our politics have gone off the rails uh, right now, and we are giving credence and credibility to things that we would never take seriously before. So if I had a parent 10 years ago who said, well, I don't want to read this book because it's, it's about a black character or it's written by someone who's black, um, we would have at best given that kid something else and pushed it to the side. Yeah, now... We are banning the, the book, pulling books away from other students, and taking seriously this idea that because something's written by a black person, we shouldn't read it in class. Uh, the last year that I was there, that was literally the edict. Nothing racial. Um, so the, the fact that we're giving seriousness to outrageous things and pretending as if it's, it's, it's actually uh, politically fair... Um, causes, I think, a lot of administrators who otherwise aren't interested in being racist or homophobic. Um, it gives them a reason to be, uh, or it makes them afraid not to be. So my experience is there are lots of administrators who are doing things that they personally don't believe in, but who are afraid if they don't, they will lose their jobs. Well, it's sort of the, um, I, I go back to the rural-urban divide mm -hmm. that we talked a, a little bit about earlier. And that is that, uh, is it your um, 
understanding that it's happening all over the the state, mm-hmm. really all over the nation. I mean, yeah. as we as we read and yeah. hear about what other governors are doing and mm-hmm. edicts and that sort of thing. So it's not it's not just Appalachia. Uh, yeah. It's happening in 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 Jefferson mm-hmm. County. Yeah, I had a um, Kenton County. I believe it was Kenton County. Um, a school. I was going to go give a presentation to seventh graders about. Uh, civil rights. So what we were looking at is how judicial interpretation of law sort of can hold a right um, by the, by the interpretation, and we were going to look at some case case studies and talk about how that has shifted what school looks like and sort of what their rights are. Uh, boring stuff, really, unless you're a historian. <laughs> boring for kids. Nothing salacious. A single parent complained um, that I that the fact that I was this overtly gay person um, was inappropriate. And so in this urban school district, I was told you can only speak if you don't speak about any specific group. And I was like, how do I talk about civil rights? And if I, if I can't reference black people or gay people or women, um, they called it the universal experience that everyone shares, which yeah. means white. Um, yeah. So I had to turn them down um, and say, I, I can't speak. I've had... I've had school districts in the urban parts of Kentucky um, impose rules that on me when I wanted to do things that they don't impose on other people simply because I'm gay. So the sad thing is it is everywhere. Um, yeah. I think that the rural places, rural, it's, I think it's a rural issue more than an Appalachian issue. Um, and frankly, I think Appalachia might be a little more live and let live um, than some other rural parts of Kentucky. Now, why do you say that? Um, Just your own personal observation? Yeah, purely. I, I would love to see uh-huh. some studies on it. But my experience, one, in just seeing what people push back against versus what they don't, um, or hearing. I've had so many more administrators in Appalachia reach out to me and say, like, I'm going to be protecting all students. And I do not see that from <laughs> as many administrators yeah. uh, in other parts of rural Kentucky. Uh, my guest is uh, Willie Carver. His uh, new book of uh, poetry is Gay Poems for Red States, published by the University Press of Kentucky. And uh, we're going to ask him to read a couple of poems uh, or sections, uh, selections from a couple of poems in just a minute. But we also want to remind you that our podcast is uh, underwritten by our, um, our writers, our friends at uh, Spalding University's MFA program. That's the Senior Jeter Naslin, a Karen Mann, a graduate school of writing. Uh, they will be with us at the Kentucky Book Festival also on October the 21st, uh, as well as uh, Willie will be there too. So we will hear from them and then we'll be right back. At Spalding University's Low Residency MFA program, creative writing students come to campus for an exciting week of learning each semester followed by independent study from home that fits in with work and family life. Write prolifically, explore across genres, gain editorial experience on a literary journal, and become part of a lifelong writing community. Writers thrive at Spalding's Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing. Learn more at spalding.edu forward slash MFA or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Willie, uh, these uh, poems uh, have been with you maybe all of your life or all of your uh, adult uh, uh, life uh, since since you've been a, a young uh, teenager and and you've put them down together and and you wrote them in in uh, 
pretty quick fashion, it seems like to me, in the in the time period that we we discussed. Um, do you ha- you have your book? Yeah, you have, and, and you're going to be signing and reading and uh, and um, I, I don't know what if you have one. I just because uh, this was in the Good River Review, which is published uh, uh, by Spalding University. Their uh, anthology and review of work from all over Kentucky, all over the world, uh, and from students uh, and and uh, uh, non-students and uh, selected by their editors and their director, Kathleen Driscoll. Uh, Waiting for God is the one that has been published in the Good River Review. Um, would you uh, give us just a little uh, perspective on this and then, and then read that for us? Absolutely. Um, and thank you. I... Um, like lots of kids who go to evangelical uh, churches, um, we have there was a concept called the age of accountability. Basically, if you know that you're doing wrong, then you could go to hell at any minute. <laughs> so, our, our pastor used to say, "We our, our church was actually right beside of an ambulance center, and so these ambulances would go by, and he, he would say they make caskets for children uh, every time they would do it." So I, I remember having like pretty early on thinking, "Okay, hell is imminent." <laughs> um, wow. Uh, so this is, it, yeah. it's about my uh, ex- experience right before I was baptized. And um, so this year, I, when I started writing, it was a, I was sitting at my computer, and I was like, I need to, I don't know what to do with, with all of these things that are happening, because I was being harassed and targeted um, by some people in my community. And I just wanted to start writing, and I started writing, and that sort of picked up, and I, I was using my voice so much this year. So a pastor from Tennessee invited me to give a sermon at his church. And I was like, this is outside of what I usually do. But I thought, I'm going to say yes to the universe this year. So I said yes. Um, So this was also the first poem I ever shared because I I, I shared it during that church service. Um, So waiting for God. I was excited and nervous to be baptized because I thought it would make me brand new like a toy still tied up and glued to its packaging, and also keep me from going to hell. In the three days until my baptism, I still had fifth grade homework. And on a Thursday evening, salted thick with dogwood and cool spring air, my mom joined me. We stretched out on the hood of her car under the Gregorian hum of crackling housing project parking lot streetlight so that I could color in the faces of the moon with a pencil. She brought out a blanket and even let me sip weak black coffee. Do you think God will wait until Sunday before the end of the world? What if he came tonight and I went to hell? She brought the cover around my shoulders and her frayed and overworked arms anointed the bargain bin blanket with the power to embrace me. She gestured upwards. The same God that put them stars in the sky didn't do it so he could send you to hell he holds them up for a reason he'll wait on you this dark sky became an aquarium of sparks and love and every fish had a name those three days stretched into three decades despite the baptism preachers and lawmakers and winners and losers and lovers and haters and people with tongues and arms hot like red irons would over and over again hold my head underwater, 
hoping that the metal hiss of steam would mock me as I drowned. But with each plunge under, the darkness of the water would part, and fish made of stardust would lay hands on me and dance in the spirit. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there are so many, uh, I, I've read through not every one of them, but several of them. Um, I, I love, uh, um, just because he just passed away. Uh, thank you, Jerry Springer. And obviously you didn't know he was going to no. pass. Um, but I want you to choose one. I, I, there, are, there are a couple of others. Uh, there, there's a longer poem that you um, uh, apparently, uh, what was the influence of, um, of Root Deep uh, at Heinemann? Uh, that is under the pews. Was that, was that written down there? Was it at the Appalachian Writers uh, Workshop? Or? It was, um, so Root Deep had a conference um, it's actually a beautiful space where they were inviting teachers of all subjects to sort of think about themselves as writers. And they asked me to be the keynote. In oh. um, a beautiful moment at that, uh, they also asked me if I would share some poems. Um, so I shared and they, they chose this one and uh, as the one they would like to share with everyone. But at that conference, a young queer teacher um, came out as queer in front of everyone for the first time and said that she had wanted to be a teacher and was afraid it wouldn't be a possibility for her and that she had actually in the library had an anxiety attack and was crying and she said and a friend of mine put his arms around me and said i had a teacher named mr carver i mean he was gay and he was really and so she names the student who was one of my former students my goodness um so she said i've actually been following you um that was a hard part about leaving because i knew yeah. if i stay i'm selling a lie uh, but yeah. a lie that maybe will give some people hope. But if I leave, I'm exposing a truth that's going to cause some pain. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, read read either that or read read one that you really like that you'd like to share with with our audience. I love I've loved them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's that's it's, tough. It is very tough. I you, love them. you've raised them up and uh, um, and you nurture them and yeah, and they're yours. Um, let's see. Um, why not thank you, Jerry Springer, since he did pass yeah. away? Um, <laughs> yeah. I can. And yeah. All right. So thank you, Jerry Springer. Uh, we actually reached out to Jerry Springer to see if he could respond, but obviously he won't be now. Um, yeah. But maybe his estate will. I didn't hear the word gay in class. I didn't hear the word gay in books. I didn't hear the word gay in songs. I didn't hear the word gay in kids shows. I did hear the word gay in church, but only when they talked about monsters. I didn't always feel like a monster, though I accepted it must be true. Our church used to pass out cartoon pamphlets, and in the special one about homosexuals, an ugly gay man had horns growing from his forehead and demons slithering up and down his back. I used to close my eyes and try to feel the invisible horns and trap the crawling demons tethered to my soul by lying down quickly. I tried to imagine a future living in cities big enough to have grocery stores and homes for monsters like me, since even monsters with horns on their soles had to eat and sleep. Though I tied those thoughts up in a bag and swallowed them, and once scribbled them in the thick graphite hieroglyphs of a nine-year-old on a rip of impatiently thin paper that I tore from the fragile dried leaf margins of our fourth grade weekly reader, quietly casting the hastily scribbled I'm K 
into a fire in our backyard. The destructive acts and monster city imaginings only further confirming the evil I'd been told to believe about myself. My mom worked the late shift at a nursing home, and on special nights, she would arrive with snacks, chips, and pop from a gas station she passed on her way home from work. We would settle in on the couches amid folding hills of blankets like ethnographers hiding ourselves from an uncontacted group of pixelated humans against the noisy background crunch of Doritos and fizz escaping pop bottles like chemically dissolved spirits. The click of the television remote would deliver us Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer was trash TV in the glory days when people thought TV was real. Cheating couples through chairs, men married their mothers-in-law, baby daddies got freed or tied down, their words, not mine, and once the KKK even met with a black preacher. For a gay mountain kid with a couch's worth of gas station snacks, it was a precious time to get to safely judge other people in a world in which I was always on trial. My least favorite and most favorite and exciting and scary episodes that barged out of the screen and left me with a black eye were the gay ones. Sometimes a man would leave his sad wife slouched over, crying and broken, declaring his love for another man seated across the stage in a folding chair as they both drowned under the booze from the audience. Sometimes men dressed up as women and said they now felt happier and free while their wounded families wept and were washed clean by the oohs and eyes of the sympathetic audience. One time, a man told his straight best friend that he was in love with him while the audience laughed and his friend got angry but he didn't even throw a chair or run away. In the small, empty space created by booed men willing to look at each other, by ridiculed men in dresses using words like happy and free, by men with angry friends who at least didn't even hit them or run away, I hoped against all odds to find some path to keep being alive. Another wonderful depiction of your growing up and uh, what brought you laughter, but, but a serious uh, mm. look at your life and what you wanted, uh, what you have now? Mm. Yes, uh, more so, right? Uh, that's the, if, if, there's a, if there's a silver lining, it takes so little um, to provide hope for an LGBTQ uh, kid. Um, and for me, it was these, these sort of pathetic people, um, but who were alive. And who found something, right? Yeah. And it, it, the stats show this when we when we talk about suicidal ideation in LGBTQ kids, a, an affirming adult uh, reduces uh, suicidal ideation by half, and an affirming adult in an affirming community reduces the levels to the same as a non-LGBTQ kid. Mm. A lot of people see the statistics and think that there must be something inherently tragic about being LGBTQ, but the only thing that's inherently tragic is the society that the kid is in, yeah. as opposed to you know, who they are. So what lies ahead for you? No clue. <laughs> um, I'm in a DMFA program uh, UK. Wonderful. And um, I'm really enjoying that. I think for the first time, I'm just sort of letting things happen. Uh, so, Good. so, you know, the last year I've I testified before Congress. Um, I just, I've probably been the keynote at, I don't know, 20 or 30 events. And um, I'm happy working uh, where I'm working now. 
and really just want to see what opportunities sort of present themselves. I know whatever I'm doing, I'm using my voice, um, and I'm excited about that. Sometimes it's a little nerve-wracking when I'm like, should I say this out loud? Yes, I'm going to say this out loud. I'm going to call people out. Um, and if that reduces opportunities for me, all the better, uh, because it means those were opportunities I didn't want. Yeah. Um, so that's sort, of, that's sort of how I'm seeing things. Well, good luck to you in your life and your work, and uh, we hope to have you back again uh, on the podcast, and it is a, a, a little while before the Kentucky Book Festival, but I know a lot of people will want to come out and meet you and uh, and uh, and say thanks and, and, and maybe even uh, pluck down a couple of dollars for your book. Well, let's hope so. I can't, I'm really excited, uh, not just to be there personally, but to, to meet everyone um, who I've been reading or following for so many years, so it's, it's exciting. Good, Willie Edward. Taylor Carver, Jr., thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 51 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.